Our scripture reading this evening comes from 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll be considering verse 22 to chapter 2, verse 3, but we're going to begin in verse 17 if you'd like to take a moment to turn there now. One of the things that we've been realizing as we study this book is that Peter has been reframing their social identity, who they are, and then moving into the implications that that has for godly living. Previous weeks, we've looked at how he exhorts love them to love for God and their conduct before God, and this week we're considering much more so how he looks at love for neighbor. And I think there's an inherent difficulty with this text in particular. There is a lot going on. He has two quotations from two separate passages in the Old Testament. He's doing some very rich theology and at the same time giving moral and ethical exhortation. And so my, I hope that my, my hope and my prayer is that my treatment of it does justice to the weight of what Peter is saying and the way that he actually embeds this ethical exhortation in really comforting texts. So we're going to turn there together this evening now. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 to chapter 2, verse 3. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flowers of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, uh, our God and Father, we come to you in the name of Christ, with the help of his Spirit, and we recognize that we are entirely dependent on His Spirit, the Spirit of the living Christ, sent out to proclaim the good news about Christ and make Him known to the ends of the earth. We are dependent on that Spirit uh, to understand even a single word that is written in this book. Uh, For without Your Spirit, this book remains closed to our eyes. And so we ask now that You would enable us in our weakness and by uh, the power of the Spirit of the risen Christ to speak a good word to us to edify our hearts, to help us to understand and that you would overcome our weaknesses and our frailties that we might hold fast to Christ. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, one of the things we opened this series with was the concept of a, a search for something compelling that makes the misery of life not just meaningful but justified. And I think it would be proper today to say that we're talking about ethical systems, the search for ethical systems regarding our behavior and our conduct with one another that's compelling. An ethical system that is compelling and enduring and makes the way that we interact with one another harmonious. And I think this is also a relevant thing for us to discuss because history is filled with discussion on how people ought to interact with one another and treat one another outside in the world. This is fairly prevalent in the Greek, Greco-Roman era through philosophers like Plato and Aristotle and Socrates. In our time, it's even more relevant. There, was a, there is really a plethora of material that's published online and uh, elsewhere in newspapers and books and articles every day discussing and framing the ways that humans should interact with one another. What is the, way, what is the proper way for us to entreat with one another and have a harmonious society? But each of these, uh, throughout the ages, has an inherent problem. They are really pulled from thin air. They're vacuous, they're transient, they're ephemeral, they just don't stick. And apart from any sort of rationalism, there isn't any, any kind of accountability to these systems. It's not to say that they're wrong, it's just that there's no foundation and there's no accountability to them. These same ethical systems actually show themselves to be just as vacuous as they appeared. It doesn't take a lot to, to analyze this. If you were to think about it, you look at something like New York City or D.C. or Los Angeles, the level of conniving and the manipulation and the political maneuvering that runs shot over any kind of ethical systems and social contract theory that people have devised to conduct themselves in their businesses and in their social lives. The level of backstabbing that occurs within friendships. And this was the same way in, in, in ancient Rome. They lived in a similarly cutthroat society. And the reality is that this is the, this is the world that we live in. Even friendship is, is de determined by what I get from you and how you can serve me. And if you don't get... If you don't suit those desires, it's just as easy to cut you out or to embarrass you to others. The reality is, selfishness is the essence that drives all interaction. And so in the midst of this, Peter comes in and he says, love one another with true, heartfelt, sincere, brotherly love, putting away all deceit, all hypocrisy and malice and envy and slander, and instead crave the nourishment of the word that you have tasted in the Lord. And here he roots this Christian love and upright ethical conduct within the community, not in some sort of rational system that doesn't hold any kind of accountability, but in three things. The word believed, the word that endures, and the word that they've tasted. Now those will be our three points this evening. The word believed, the word that endures, and the word that they've tasted. But as we cover this, I, I really hope to show not only the great comfort it is to us to receive this exhortation 
And this command to love one another in these ways and to not be characterized by the way that the world entreats with one another, but how it's also embedded in a rich pilgrim exile theology. So first, the word believed. Peter opens in verse 22 saying, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Now this could could sound confusing at first because it could convey the idea that you've done it by your obedience. But we have to remember that Peter stated earlier in verse 3 that, of chapter 1 that God has caused us to be reborn or to be born again to a living hope. He's also stated in verse 2 that the purification of our souls or the sanctification of the spirit that is ours is for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. So we have a really an overlap of themes that he's already covered. And things are now at this point coming full circle. Our obedience to the truth here is the response in faith to the gospel because he has caused us to be born again. He has regenerated our hearts and taken them from being stone and replaced them with flesh that we might respond in faith to the truth. That's the obedience that Peter is describing here. Now the truth here is the God of creation and His saving work in Jesus Christ. That's the word that they are believing. And so having believed the word, we have been purified by the sprinkling of Jesus' blood, and in light of this sprinkling, we are called to obey Jesus, as he stated in verse 2. But what Peter now holds before them is a specific application of that obedience, a specific vein of what that obedience looks like. And he holds it forth as one of the purposes for which the people of God have been redeemed from sin and death and slavery. As those redeemed and purified by belief and faith in the gospel, we are now intended to do something new. We are purified for obedience the obedience of a sincere brotherly love that reflects our purity from the sprinkled blood of Christ. This is the purpose for which we were sprinkled. And what is sincere brotherly love? It's not duplicitous. It's genuine. It's without hypocrisy. It's stretched out. It's strained over time. It is earnest and it's true. It's not fake or feigned. But it arises from the deepest recesses of our own hearts. It corresponds to our own own intrinsic emotions and motives and feelings and desires. We witness an example of this when Jesus prays in the garden of Gethsemane. He uses the same word to describe that prayer. Jesus prays in agony and earnestness with bloody sweat dripping from his brow. It arises from the essence of his own heart. And Peter then here actually commands them to display this kind of love in their conduct amongst amongst one another, to love one another earnestly from this kind of pure heart. And this is a purity that we actually receive and it should create a selflessness that permeates our very being, allowing us to love one another, to put on this care for one another. So that we don't do it because we're forced to and it's out of touch with what we feel, but it's earnest, it's true to who we are. So, 
because of the sprinkled blood of Christ that we've come to faith in, that purifies us, we can and should love one another in this way. And it's not about what we get in return or what you can do for me or what I can do or what, you can, what I can get from you. The word believed not only produces this, but calls us to display this kind of love and behavior to one another in our Christian community. And it's the purpose that Peter says for which we were redeemed. Now, it's, it's weird to say that, that you've been purified by obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, so love one another in that way. If it's a natural effect that will come about by their faith, why does Peter state it, right? It's like telling somebody who breathes air that they need to breathe air to live. But the reality is that our brains automatically cause us to breathe air. So why tell us to breathe air? Here's the point. Ostracized, outside their culture, misplaced citizens. The world we live in is a fast world where everyone is just trying to get by. They're looking out for their own wants, their own needs, and their own desires. They're promoting their narrative of what the good life is, and they will do anything to get it. So what happens when their narrative of the good life is challenged by a different perspective and a different narrative like that of the Christian gospel that undermines the basic philosophical assumptions of the Greco-Roman world and the basic religious convictions of the Greco-Roman world, the basic ways that people should go about living, social ostracism, malignment, government sanction, outcasts, the very same things that happen to the Christian community living as pilgrims in the Roman Empire, to the people that Peter is writing to. And within the Greco-Roman Empire, there's no obligation for their, the way that their surrounding culture should, should, should treat such a people. In fact, their unjust treatment was actually justified by the Roman Empire, by both court and culture. At this time, at this same time that Peter is writing this letter to the, the Christians in Asia Minor, just on the other side of the world, the known world, at the center of the empire, Christians were being burned at the stake. But Christian community is to be different than the way that they're treated in the world. It's to be a safe haven for those who feel alone, bullied, persecuted, and are suffering for the sake of Christ all sorts of injustice. This is to be a place where love and a trueness and an earnestness of affection and care for one another exist that does not exist anywhere else. There's, there's two levels to this. Not only does the friendship of the world not know this level of earnestness and trueness of heart, but the, 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 the nature of the world itself is contrasted to and antagonistic to the Christian way of life and the Christian gospel. So this kind of love, this kind of community is not only foreign in our relationships with other people and our cordial friendships, but does not exist in the same way because they are against us. 
by nature. And the interesting thing is that Scripture says they will know we are Christians by this love. So when people from the outside world witness the love and the care and the concern that we have for one another, the trueness and the earnestness of affection for one another, that signals something drastically and qualitatively different. When they witness our willingness to lay down our lives for one another, to care, to listen, to serve, to pray for one another, to sit on the ash heap with a friend in need, that is something that's strikingly different. Here, we find respite and safety from the kind of relationships that we have outside the world where we are out of touch and at odds and ostracized. And here we also find a kind of brotherly love that isn't about what you can give me and what I can get from you. We willingly love one another because, the word belie- because of the word believed and what it produces in us and what it calls us to. Now, if you're anything like me, you know just how hard this is, which makes it actually wonderful that Peter gives this exhortation and roots it in the word believed as a product of and of that word and something that flows out with that word. Love uh, Over the years, I love the way that Paul Tripp puts it. He says the DNA of sin is selfishness. You and I are programmed to my wants, my needs, my desires. The incessant motto of our brain is, I want, I want, I want, I want, I want, I want. But here, when the word is preached, all that falls away in the face of the fellowship of the Spirit created by the preached word. So that something different takes hold. Something different is produced. Something that's true in our affection for one another. And the reality is that love is so debased in our world. But in the community of Christ, it cannot and should not be. We must love one another earnestly, reflecting the love of God's own essence displayed in Christ and created by His Word. And what could be of more comfort to a people surrounded by hate and ostracism to know that when they gather, this is a safe space, a safe haven of brotherly love where you don't have to question somebody's motives for caring for you or whether or not they actually do. You don't need to look over your shoulder wondering who's next to stab you in the back, who's next to disappoint you. Nobody here is out to get you. This is safe. There is not. Now, speaking of that word and that truth believed and this command to love one another, well, Peter roots this command in something that is not ephemeral, that is not made up, but that's in the word that's proven itself to endure. And this is our second point. He says, you should do this 
According to verse 23, because you've been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of an imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God. Now we've, we've seen already that this, command, that this love is commanded because they believed the truth, the word, but that the word itself is further proof and reason for adherence to Peter's exhortation. Think about it. The words we word don't change things. They don't change us. They don't change the nature of our relationships. We've already noted that the ethical suggestions of our world are vacuous and that it's cutthroat out there. Those words are empty, transient, and have no ability to undo the state of things, to create a utopia, no matter how much we may try. But the word of God, the, word, uh, the God of creation who spoke all things into being, who out of nothing created everything, now speaks and his word operates in such a way that, it's, that it speaks out of nothing, recreation to his people. This word shows itself to stand above and outside of the words that we experience that arise out of this word, perishable world, perishable words, because it proves itself to be imperishable. It proves itself to actually accomplish that for which it sets out to accomplish. It actually changes the state of things. It actually recreates. Its effect is true. It does not wither. Satisfaction is guaranteed. There's no return policy to his word. And you want proof of that claim? That God's word endures? That it's an imperishable seed that causes us to be born again? Peter proves it by a quotation of Isaiah 40. We come. We go. We wither. We die. Just like grass and just like the flowers of the field. Winter will come pretty swiftly here in a few months. The grass will wither. I imagine it will be quite depressing. But the word of the Lord, that remains forever. And how do I, how do I know that it remains forever? How do I know that it accomplishes everything that God sets out for it to accomplish? How do I know that it's imperishable and has the quality of the kingdom of heaven unfit for this creation? Because God has been true to his word. He offers the proof for this claim and shows his word to be imperishable by his acts and nature, all of which Isaiah 40 lays out. It holds before us the God of creation. It says this, He has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span. He's enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who can compare to God, Isaiah asks. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made God understand? Who taught him the path of justice and knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Nobody did. So to whom will you liken God? To idols that cannot even talk? 
Don't you know, says Isaiah, have you not heard from the beginning and have you not understood the foundations of the earth? He sits above all of creation as God Almighty. Have you not heard? Do you not know the Lord is everlasting? Everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint. He does not grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He is the God of creation who created all things out of nothing. And not only is He the God of creation, but He is the God who cares for His people and has proven it. So He's giving them a call back to the marvelous history of Israel and God's saving acts. He will, as Isaiah says, says, tend to His flock like a shepherd, gather the lambs in His arms, carry them in His bosom, and gently lead those with young. And how does He do this? in the person and the work of Christ. And this is the word that was preached to you. So he's now proven to be not only the God of creation, but the God who cares for his people and that they heard about when they heard the preached word of Christ. That Christ who is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. So it wasn't just the saving acts that Isaiah was telling them to look back at. It's now for the people of God, after the resurrection and ascension of Christ, all of his 2,000 years of Christ's power. Yeah, the word of God endures forever. The proof is in the word. The testimony that is preached to you. The proof is in creation. The, the, truth, the, the proof is in Jesus Christ. And do you know what's interesting about Isaiah 40? It's a word of consolation to a people who are crying out in agony in Babylon, in Rome. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. A voice cries out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the highway of our God. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all of flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. It's proclaiming to exiles that the word of the Lord is sure, it's certain. A deliverer will come and the glory of the Lord will be restored to them and God will speak to them. Who has seen that glory as pilgrims and exiles in Babylon and Rome? In 2023? We have. In Jesus Christ who came, who prepared this highway to accomplish salvation and lift every valley and every mountain to be the glory of God, the words spoken to us. So the pilgrim, the outcast, to the pilgrim and to the outcast, he who is Savior, crea- Creator over all things, gives power to the faint-hearted. To the one who has no might, says Isaiah, he increases his strength. Those who wait for the Lord 
To those who wait for the Lord, He shall renew their strength so that they mount up like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. This is the call back that Peter is giving to the saints that are suffering ostracism and persecution in, in Asia Minor. And exhorting to love one another earnestly on the basis of the word preached to them. Why? Because the Lord has spoken a word that endures. He's recreated how? The word of his son. Why? It's it's almost funny. Love one another because you've been born again by the word of the Lord that does not perish but endures. How do we know it endures? Because God has created. He is powerful. He has promised through Isaiah to deliver, saying tenderly, comfort, comfort my exiled people. That's why you can love earnestly. Because God's word and power and salvation is true and it comes to a suffering people in exile and pilgrimage. It's ironic. He he proves the word of the Lord endures as an impetus for obedience through the quotation of the word to exiles. And the message is clear. He hears your cries from Egypt. So he gives his word. And he gives a safe haven that is meant and intended to be a foretaste of the imperishable kingdom of heaven for which we long. And not, though, not only does that word come to you and show itself to be true, but actually you get to taste and see it. And this is our third point. Now, in the first verse of chapter 2, Peter instructs them on how they can go about loving one another in this way. He says, to put away all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. And I wish that we had more time to consider these, so I'll be brief. But all of these qualities undo community. Malice seeks to hurt. Deceit fractures trust and creates a spirit of suspicion. So that you're looking over your shoulder. Hypocrisy leads us to judge others. Envy creates contempt in our own hearts for others. And slander publicly injures others' reputation and maims their hearts. These things have no place in a community that is intended to be a safe haven for the, from the dangers of the outside community that we're, where we're at odds and where we're prone to suffer slander and ostracism for our faith. Instead of those things, the practical way that Peter suggests is a tool for going about putting all of these away is to be like newborn infants who long for pure spiritual milk. They didn't have baby formula. All they had was the milk provided by the mother without which a child could not live. An infant was entirely dependent on its mother for its sustenance and for its life. Still is. And the interesting thing about this is that the ancients believed that the child's moral quality and capabilities was a product of the moral quality of the woman who nursed that child as an infant. 
they received their moral quality from the milk, uh, the virtue of the milk of the woman that they drank, uh, they, they were nourished from. So if the moral quality of the woman who nursed an infant was bad, the child would have low moral quality. So for Peter to say like a newborn infant long for pure spiritual milk is really to say that there is a kind of milk that corresponds to the new birth you have in Christ. There is a right kind of milk that you should be craving and dependent on and reliant on. And there is also a wrong kind. So it's broader than simply saying that we should just read the Bible as the word of God here. It, it, it actually points to craving what sustains and nourishes new life in the new reality of Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension. It's a very specific kind of word. It's a very specific kind of milk. This would be the word preached. Exhortation that nourishes the heart and leads to Christ and gives practical wisdom and practical instruction for godly living that infuses moral quality. Like a newborn child, you cannot survive and you cannot put off these qualities or love from a true heart without this word and without the word of God being held before you as the wisdom that you need to guide your life. So the word itself, preached and proclaimed, nourishes and edifies and creates this community. And absence of it should lead to turmoil and starvation. Like that of a crying infant that needs to be fed. Furthermore, what's the sure proof that the living Word of God abides forever, delivers us, edifies us in these ways, and creates and empowers and demands a community of love? What's the proof, the tangible proof that we have that the Word of God is doing all of these things? Well, there is something that breaks its way into the, the material world that we can taste, that we can touch, that we can see the bread and the wine. So you want to you wanna talk about experience? I, I like to think that the bread and the wine are the most tangible and real thing that you and I taste and touch in this world. There's nothing more real, there's nothing more concrete or of worth or of touch and imbued with meaning than the bread and the wine because it's the only thing that scripture speaks about in terms of our enjoyment of in this material world that it imbues with meaning and that it encourages for our use and our indulgence in. It tells you what to think of the bread and wine and tells you that it's something that's pouring out from the powers of the age to come that you get to taste and touch and see and that gives you a foretaste of that heavenly feast, the wedding feast of the Lamb. That's it. So I want to suggest that of all of the things that you and I touch and taste and feel, this is the most real thing and the most beautiful thing held out to us. 
It's the thing Scripture actually speaks about and imbues with theological significance that we actually get to enjoy, and it comes from the eternal kingdom as a sign and seal of what Christ has done for us. So we've tasted the powers of the age to come and the bread and the wine as a sure sign and seal of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross as the word that endures. That bread and wine are tangible evidence of God's power, of his work and creation, of his care for you, and of his desire that we would love one another with true and earnest hearts. So take heart, dear saint. We may be surrounded by a world of trouble, ostracized, outcast pilgrims in the center of Babylon, but here in this place you get a kind of nourishment that you can't get anywhere else, that corresponds to salvation, the salvation that you're growing up into and, and obtaining. And you get this in the preached word and in the tangible bread and wine to edify your faith and guide you in our interactions with one another as the body of Christ. So certainly this is a word of consolation to hurting pilgrims but also testimony to a tangible and enduring command to love one another and let our community be a safe haven, be a, a place of joy, a place where there's something tangibly different that guides the way that we live. And so greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends and love them with a sincere and true heart, putting away all malice and deceit. And I think that's, Peter's heart is massive. To embed in his exhortation to love one another, the exhortation itself comes from his desire that the people would be okay because he knows what they're enduring and how hard it is. That zealous apostle's heart for his people. He's concerned that his people have, as they pilgrimage, as they pilgrimage to heaven, nourishment from the word that they taste and a community within which to do it. That's what he's concerned for. And truly, that is what we have. Father in heaven, uh, we give you great thanks and we give you great praise because we recognize that you have blessed us beyond measure with a community of brothers and sisters that love in sincerity of heart. We give you thanks because you've provided us not only your word, but also the bread and the wine. And we ask that not just this day, but every week, we would love one another more from a sincere and pure heart. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.